Hello, mystery and suspense fans, and welcome to episode two of K.L. Murphy's Her Sister's Death. My name is Jess, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. Previously on Her Sister's Death. After learning of her sister's death, title drop, Val's grief, combined with her hunch that there's more to this story, leads her to team up with a retired homicide detective she's only just met. And Bridget, our bride-to-be, receives some frightening information as she prepares to walk down the aisle. Are both these women making a terrible mistake? Chapter 10. Terry. Monday, 4.51 p.m. Val pulls off the two-lane highway into a neighborhood fronted by a white fence and evergreen trees. She drives past a community pool, tennis courts, and a playground. I don't miss the way her lip quivers as we pass a half-dozen young mothers sitting on benches, each smiling brightly as they watch their children swing and slide. She jerks her head forward and locks her fingers over the steering wheel. I'm holding my phone to my ear, waiting for Billy. He comes back on the line. Yes, I say. Those are the dates. Thanks, Billy. I appreciate your help. Val glances over at me. Well? He's pulling the video. Said to give him until tomorrow morning. Is this... I hear the hesitation in her voice. Is this legal? I mean... The video is private, right? Technically, it's the property of the hotel, so yes, it's private. But there's nothing illegal about watching it so long as we have permission. What about the police? Wouldn't they already have watched it? Depends. Although I doubt it if they don't suspect foul play. She accepts that. We pass two-story colonials and brick mini-mansions with manicured lawns and sweeping drives. Nice place, I say, as she comes to a stop in front of a large house the color of butter. Yep. She jumps out of the car in a flash, her coat flying behind her. Before I can get up the sidewalk, she's turning the key in the lock. She walks inside a few feet and freezes, her body rigid. She covers her nose with her hand. Following her, I stop too. The smell is overpowering. The house is filled with the bitter, musty odor of dead flowers. As a former homicide detective, I've smelled much worse, but it's pretty bad. Are you okay? I ask. She leans against the wall, her skin the color of wax. My sister loved flowers. The words are half-mumbled, half-sobbed. I wait. She put them everywhere. They made her happy, she said. I don't doubt her. On the hall table are three short vases with what was once hydrangea and feathery greens. The petals dried brown now. The bottom of each vase is dark with mildew. There's another large vase in the living room. Dead roses droop over the rim. Val? Her chest heaves once, and then she lifts her chin. 
With outstretched arms, she sweeps the dead arrangements from the table. I'm fine. Can you help me get all the vases, please? We fill two trash bags with dried out blooms and slimy stems. We wash vases of all sizes and colors. She says little as we work. There are more than a dozen containers lined up along the counter when we're finished. I step back and dry my hands. The cloying odor of drying flowers has faded, and she looks better, stronger. Is this the house your sister shared with her husband before they separated? She gives a single nod. They thought it would be better not to uproot the kids. Sylvia didn't want to take them away from their school and their friends. Makes sense, I say. Tell me about the husband. What's he like? I listen to the words, but I get a better idea of how she feels from the way her mouth pulls downward at the corners and the way her body seems to stiffen. When she's finished, I ask another question, a harder one. Do you think the affair, the one your sister knew about, was the only one? Her lips purse as though she's tasted something sour. Sylvia thought so, although now that you mention it, I'm not so sure. I don't know why, but women seem to like him. Any particular reason? What do you mean? Is he good looking? Does he have a lot of money? I don't know. She chuckles but not in a way that makes me think she's amused. I couldn't say how good-looking he is. He's okay, I guess, but I'm probably not the right person to ask. He was my sister's husband. I didn't think about how he looked. She pauses, thinking. He makes good money, has a good job, but nothing amazing. They were comfortable. I let my gaze wander over the gourmet kitchen and large family room but I don't say anything. So what makes you think women like him? He's funny, quick with a joke. He's good with people and kids. When he talks to you, or at least he used to be this way, he always has something nice to say. I remember Sylvia said it was his special talent to make you feel like you mattered. Her frown deepens. If you ask me, his special talent is being a fake. It's all about his ego, about making himself out to be the good guy when he's anything but. A gigolo type? No, he's not that smooth. I sense reluctance in her admission. Not polished or rehearsed. Maybe that's why women are drawn to him. He's like the male version of the girl next door, or we all thought he was. She hesitates, her head angled to her shoulder. Why does it matter? I don't know that it does, I say. But it might help me get a handle on the guy. You said women like him. Anyone stand out? His girlfriend, of course, Danny. I know it's a loaded question even as I ask it. And what's she like? You don't really want to know what I think. Is she younger? Ding, ding, ding. Give the man a prize. She smiles a little but she doesn't laugh. 25, maybe? Looks like a younger version of Syl, except bottle blonde, not natural like my sister. Same build. Works with computers or something. A little dependent, maybe. I remember Sylvia telling me once that Wyatt said Danny needed him, 
something about her parents dying young and her being alone. She looked up at the ceiling. Like that explained everything. Danny needed him. I guess it's safe to say the relationship between Sylvia and the girlfriend wasn't good. What relationship? Val says with a snort. Who would want a relationship with the woman who stole your husband? Good point. She draws in a breath. But Sylvia wasn't the vengeful type, if that's what you're thinking. She hated Danny, sure, but she didn't talk bad about her or anything to their friends. I must look surprised because she offers an expanded explanation. Sylvia realized that no one made Wyatt have an affair. I think that's what hurt her the most. He chose to cheat on her instead of going to counseling or trying harder. Of course, she blamed Danny, but she blamed Wyatt more. She pauses, and her voice softens. It was hard on Sylvia. You know how it is when couples split up. People take sides. They stop spending time with the husband or the wife, then eventually both of them. I consider her words and wonder briefly if she's still talking about Sylvia. Steering the conversation back to Wyatt, I ask, what about at his job? Friends there? She takes her time answering. I don't know who he spends time with anymore. When he and Sylvia were together, they had a tight group of friends, some of them from his office. There's his assistant, Angela. Sylvia and I used to talk about her sometimes. She's young, too. She starts to say something more, but changes her mind. She straightens and surveys the room. Enough about Wyatt. That's not why we're here. Let's look around. Sure. I repeat what I said in the car on our ride to the house. Our focus is looking for anything that strikes you as unusual or out of character for your sister. Something that might imply things weren't the status quo. Such as? I can't tell if she's being deliberately obtuse or not. Val's agenda appears singular, but I don't know her well enough to assume anything about her. I don't know, a major purchase, rescheduling or skipping appointments. Again, she hesitates. Although I wonder if she's holding something back, I decide not to press. And anything that seems weird or threatening, I finish. Fine. Her gaze sweeps past me to the stairs. You take the kitchen and the den, she says. I'll start in the bedrooms. I'm opening drawers before she makes it up the first step. Although better organized and three times the size of my own, it's a typical kitchen. Silverware, plates, and glasses. There's a junk drawer filled with playing cards, matches, pens, and a few screwdrivers. Nothing out of the ordinary. I move on to the den. Photos in black frames cover the mantle. Most are of the children, but in the corner tucked behind the others is another smaller one. It's a man and a woman on a sailboat, the cloudless sky behind them a brilliant blue. I pick it up, squinting. The man's face is hard to see, the woman the focus. She's smiling, not the polite kind or the there's a camera on me kind, but the kind that comes from the inside, radiant and joyous. 
I feel my own lips turn up looking at her. I slide it back behind the others, careful to leave the pictures and the happy images of Sylvia's life exactly as I found them. After looking through the shelves loaded with books and knickknacks, I turn my attention to the desk in the corner. The files are filled with bank statements and bills and school grade reports. It's in the middle drawer where I find the calendar. I turn to the current month. The Franklin is written in large letters across several blocks. I stare at the words for a long time before I flip the pages. The initials make me turn back. I take the steps two at a time. There are three bedrooms on the right. The doors are open and the rooms are empty. The first two are children's rooms, one pink. The other is blue-green as the sea. A closet door and a few drawers are open, as though someone packed in a hurry. The third bedroom looks unlived in, a guest room. Down the hall, another door is half open. As I get closer, I hear Val's sobs. It's different from her meltdown at the library. Quieter, sadder somehow. I push open the door. She's sitting on the bed, a notebook of some kind in her lap. She doesn't see me or hear me. I don't want to startle her, so I wait. When the cries stop, I step into the room. Val? Her cheeks are stained with tears. She holds up the book, and her body sags. Sylvia's diary. I walk in a few more feet. She wipes her eyes. She's been keeping a diary since she was in third grade. Pointing at the walk-in closet, she says, All the old ones are in there, in boxes. She holds up the one in her hands. This is the most recent I could find. I don't keep a diary, but I know they are different things to different people. Some are hardly more than exaggerated calendars, listing the day's activities. Others are long monologues of emotion. Most are something in between. What does it say? She runs her fingers over the cover. Not much, really. She skips through the pages. There's this one thing. It's so Sylvia. Read it to me. Val doesn't speak for a minute. This was right before Christmas a year ago. Her voice wobbles as she reads, and I move closer to hear. Mary has inherited my voice, I'm afraid. Earlier tonight, I thought it would be fun to make hot chocolate and take the children to sing carols with the neighbors. Miles rolled his eyes, but he went. Mary, though, was overjoyed and belted out jingle bells with more enthusiasm than any four-year-old I've ever seen. Unfortunately, most of us would have preferred a little less enthusiasm when she opened her mouth. Miles covered his ears once or twice until I told him to stop. After the first house, I had her stand next to Mr. Moxley. He's deafer than a lamppost. We should all be so lucky. You get her, right? She looks up at me. So funny. Yes, I say, and mean it. I've gotten a sense of the woman in a short period of time. Sylvia was organized, 
but her refrigerator is crowded with pictures of her children and their artwork. She loved flowers and had a sparkling wit. And based on the pile of sneakers in the mudroom, I can guess she was a runner. Her house is tastefully decorated but comfortable, a home. This was a family. This is how it is during a homicide investigation. The victim becomes a person, living and breathing. Tears fall again. I don't know what's wrong with me, she says. I didn't even cry for days, and now I'm a leaky faucet. I sit on the edge of the bed at the corner, careful to keep some distance between us. I'm sorry you're having to go through this, Val. She wipes her cheeks with her fingers and closes the diary. Here's the thing. This diary isn't the last one. The words she spoke earlier come back to me. You said it was the most recent one you found. Right? It goes to midsummer, which means the latest is missing. If her sister was as consistent with her diary as Val seems to think, six months is too long. Perhaps she took it with her to the hotel. I doubt it. She didn't like the idea of losing them or having them where a stranger could find them. Besides, Newman and Barnes didn't say anything about a diary. It must be missing. Her quick assumption is a leap, but I understand. She's eager to find an answer to the unanswerable. You should ask the detectives, to be sure. Val stares down at the book in her hand. I will. Her gaze slides over to me. Why did you come up here? Oh, right. I hold up the calendar I discovered in the desk. I found something. 1921. Chapter 11. Bridget. Bridget couldn't take her eyes off her reflection. She stared at the veil, which floated over her head and cascaded down her back. The cool silk of her gown rippled and shimmered with her every movement. Her fingers fluttered to her throat. She'd never felt so beautiful, certainly never imagined she could. Oh, Bridget, Margaret breathed. You are the loveliest bride I've ever seen. She reached out and squeezed Bridget's hand. She brushed at a tear, her lower lip trembling. Oh, don't mind me. I know it doesn't seem like it. I've just been so happy these days. Bridget's heart swelled, and she handed Margaret a handkerchief from the dressing table. You're the one who's lovely. I'm so lucky to have you. Margaret sniffled and laid a hand on her belly. Enough of this sappiness. I can't be weeping or I'll look a mess. Never. Smiling, Margaret dragged a comb through her hair and pinched her cheeks for color. As ready as I'll ever be, I guess. She stood in front of Bridget, holding out her arms. Let me look at you again. Bridget held still, as though if she moved, it would surely break the spell. Margaret's red mouth widened. Wait until Lawrence sees you. He'll be speechless, I know it. The words hit Bridget like a bucket of cold water, and she staggered, catching herself on her sister's outstretched arm. She caught sight of her reflection again. 
The dress she loved so much served merely as a prop in a show. A costume for a performance Bridget was no longer sure she wanted to be part of. In less than two hours, she would become Lawrence's wife. She would stand in front of her parents and her friends and take a vow to be loyal and true. She should be happy. Bridget, what's wrong? You look as though you've seen a ghost. I'm fine. Margaret's mouth was no longer smiling. You're not fine. The minute I mentioned Lawrence's name, you... You changed. You looked scared. That isn't nervousness, Bridget. I know what you look like when you're nervous. You crack your knuckles and drive Mother crazy. She studied Bridget's hands, holding them in hers. You've been biting the skin around your nails again. She pulled Bridget closer. You're scared of something. You can tell me, Bridget. We're sisters, remember? Through thick and thin? She almost told Margaret everything then. But she couldn't. Instead, she settled for half-truths. I am a little scared. More than a little. This isn't wedding jitters, is it? Has Lawrence done something? No. This, at least, was not a lie. He hadn't done anything she could point to or complain about. Sometimes he's, um, very strong-willed in his opinions. I don't know if what I think or feel matters. Perhaps I'm being a child, I don't know. It was clear from the set of Margaret's jaw her explanation was not satisfactory. Go on. Bridget's mouth went dry. Her story had to be true enough, even if it wasn't the truth. Well, I can't tell him about Joseph. Joseph? The boy you worked with at the store? Yes. She stared at the floor as she spoke. We started working at the same time. He was stocking the floor, and I would tell him what we needed, and sometimes he would carry packages for customers, and he was doing the window displays. You became friends, Bridget nodded. More than friends? She looked past her sister. Had they? She couldn't be sure anymore. I don't know. After he quit the store, I never saw him again. Lines appeared between Margaret's perfectly rounded brows. But you liked this boy. Bridget's skin flushed. It was bad enough Joseph forgot her so easily, but admitting it out loud made her heart hurt in a way she didn't want to think about. Did something happen between the two of you? Margaret stepped closer, her voice a whisper. I won't tell anyone, Bridget. There had been a few walks through the park, an exchange of jokes and stories. There was the time he'd taken her hand in his and stood close, his warm breath caressing her cheek. He'd touched his lips to hers. Her skin tingled at the memory. And he'd kissed her a second time, longer. She hadn't been able to forget the rush of blood through her veins or the urge to wrap her arms around his neck. But the next day, he was too busy for a walk, and the next day, and the next. Before the week was out, he was gone, as though he'd never been there at all. Worse, there was no one to tell. Lawrence had been coming around the store by then. 
For weeks, he treated her like a princess before declaring his intentions to her father. Lawrence was a successful businessman, while Joseph was a store clerk who'd run away after snatching a couple of kisses. Bridget? Startled, it took Bridget several seconds to remember the question. Nothing happened, not really. He left the store and I never saw him again. Margaret's eyes searched hers. But you liked him. Bridget shrugged. Yes, she liked him. More than liked him, if she were honest. But that was something she wasn't ready to confess. Not to Margaret, and never to Lawrence. He'd asked her once if she'd ever kissed another man. Something about the way he'd looked at her when he'd asked had made her hesitate. Why would you ask me that? If I were to make you my wife, I would want to know your loyalty was to me and no other, Bridget. I'd want to know that when you kissed me, it wasn't another man you were wanting to kiss. Are you planning to kiss me? She'd asked, tilting her head. Don't play the coquette, Bridget, he'd said, voice snapping. It doesn't become you. He'd dropped the question, and she hadn't been forced to lie. But now she wondered what would have happened if she'd told him the truth then. Would she still be standing in a dress the color of fresh snow, her stomach in knots? Would there be a wedding at all? As she'd done with Lawrence, Bridget evaded Margaret's question, asking one of her own instead. Did you kiss Charles before you were married? Margaret wagged her finger. You're changing the subject. I still want to know. Huh, well, pink spots appeared on her sister's cheeks. Y yes, a few times. Not that Charles didn't do the proper things, you know, but we were to be married, so... With a single finger, she lifted Bridget's chin. What does this have to do with Joseph or Lawrence? Lawrence thinks it's important to wait. This, too, was the truth, though incomplete. Sometimes I worry he isn't interested in me at all. Margaret half laughed. Well, I know that's not true. She paused. Bridget, I've seen the way he looks at you. He adores you. It's as though you're so perfect he's afraid you'll break. But I'm not perfect and I won't break. She knew how she must sound. A woman complaining that her betrothed adored her too much. But she couldn't help it. All that adoration... The expectations. They were more than she could fulfill. And the conversation with Luella had fanned the flames of fear that were already keeping her up at night. I have kissed a boy, she whispered. Once. Margaret stepped back. Ah, Joseph. Yes. And you're worried Lawrence wouldn't understand? I know he wouldn't. Bridget, I'm sure you're mistaken. Lawrence was married once before. He's shared many kisses with another woman. You kissed a young man you were fond of one time. One time, Bridget. Bridget heard the fear in her voice, but she couldn't hold back now. He thinks I'm pure. Oh, Bridget. One kiss doesn't make you a temptress, you know. You're still the same wonderful and kind girl you were before you met Joseph. You're still the woman Lawrence fell in love with. Please don't worry about this for one more minute. If he found out, 
He wouldn't forgive me. He would be angry. Maybe more than angry. You're exaggerating now. She pulled her closer. Aren't you, Bridget? Chapter 12 Bridget Bridget stared unseeing out the window. The streets and the buildings they passed a blur. Margaret sat close with Bridget's veil stretched across her lap. In the front of the automobile, their mother and father chattered on. Margaret's husband followed in Uncle Anthony's new Ford. It was to be a small and intimate wedding, limited to close family and a handful of friends. Lawrence had asked if she minded. I know it's our special day, my dear, and I do want to make you happy in any way I can. But I would feel a bit awkward having one of those lavish affairs, especially what with my having been briefly married before. I don't have much family, as you know, so the few people I will gladly receive at the celebration can be of your choosing. You do understand, don't you, dear? Oh, yes, absolutely, Bridget had assured him. Since agreeing to marry Lawrence, she'd felt strangely disconnected from the planning. You are my angel. In an unusual gesture of intimacy, he'd touched an icy hand to her cheek. All that matters is we are wed and can begin our lives together. She'd smiled up at him in what she hoped was an angelic manner. Well, thank you for lunch, Lawrence. I have to get back to work now. Do you have to? Why don't we go for a walk down by the river? You know I can't. I know I'm going to be happy when you don't have this job anymore. I like my job. Be that as it may, you won't be working as a shop girl much longer. You'll be my wife, he'd said. Bridget had looked away, but not before he'd caught the dismay on her face. Bridget, he'd said, voice stern. That's what you want, right? To be my wife. They'd arrived in front of the store. She'd let her gaze wander over the window display Joseph had set up the last one before he'd disappeared. Of course, she'd told him. If there was no feeling in her answer, he didn't seem to notice. That's my girl. He'd straightened the bowler hat he wore. I'll be gone for two days, but I'll be back before the weekend. Try not to be working the next time I'm in the city, hmm? She'd promised to do her best before hurrying into the store. She'd breathed in the perfumed air as she made her way to the second floor. She liked her job, loved it even. But maybe it was for the best. Lately, being there reminded her of Joseph. Bridget felt the touch of a hand on her shoulder, and her head jerked, banging against the glass. Are you okay? Margaret asked, sliding closer on the bench seat. We're almost there. Bridget leaned forward. The chapel was up ahead, the gold of the steeple shining under the bright midday sun. Her hands clenched and unclenched in her lap, damp with perspiration. Margaret reached for her. You don't have to do this. She kept her voice low, her mouth close to Bridget's ear. Mother and father, they'll get over it. You're the person I'm worried about but Bridget knew her parents wouldn't forgive her, wouldn't understand how she could take the word of a woman rumored to be insane over that of her betrothed. 
potentially sullying her reputation enough to repel other suitors. They'd been in favor of her courtship with Lawrence immediately, pushing her to match his swift and steady interest. It was true she'd never matched his level of affection, but for them she'd tried. And Luella's story might be a reason for her reluctance, but it sounded far-fetched even to her own ears. Why would her parents believe it when she didn't know if she believed it herself? I'm fine. The automobile rolled to a stop. Her father jumped out, opened the door, and extended his hand. Let's hurry. It's freezing out here. The group slipped through the back door of the church, congregating in the small room that doubled as an office. Reverend Michaels greeted them there, shaking hands with Bridget's father. Just in time, George. I was beginning to get a little worried, he said. The three women followed him inside. Bridget, her steps slow and hesitant, found an empty space near the window. Margaret stayed close, her hand finding Bridget's. The pastor glanced over at the young women. Your groom is very eager, miss. He's been here more than a half hour already. And your guests. Shall we get started? Present Day Chapter 13 Val, Monday, 5.38 p.m. Terry pushes the calendar across the countertop and taps one of the blocks on the page, a Saturday two weeks before Sylvia died. Do you see what I mean? He reads the entry out loud. S.M., 7 o'clock. He points out another date, this time a Monday. S.M., noon. I barely listen, entranced instead by the smiley face my sister has drawn next to the initials. My hand trembles as I reach out to take the calendar. S.M. could be anyone. He could be a business appointment. He could be a friend. He could be a she. But I know it isn't. I scan the days of the month and find more dates with the same initials. One is marked drinks. The others, dinner. I flip the pages back to the previous month and count the number of times the initials SM appear. Eight times. Lunches and dinners. I turn to the month before that, and I find the same initials again, although fewer this time. I go back further, but there are no more entries referring to the mysterious SM. There are other appointments with other initials. Hairdresser is HD, and our parents are M and D. VG is me. Syl loved nicknames, and when we were young, she dubbed me Valley Girl. But it had more to do with my name being Valerie than the traits ascribed to California girls that I possessed— as a teen, I was more bookworm than ditzy or fashionable. Still am. Either way, it stuck. And once, after Wyatt brought his girlfriend Danny to a school event, she began calling her B.D. for Barbie doll. Every time she used the nickname, she made me giggle. These are the initials I know. Others, I don't. There's a K.D. next to Mary's name, and an S.G. I don't recognize, but they only appear once each. I return to the first SM notation. Next to the letters is the word drinks. There is no happy face. Instead, the SM is followed by two question marks. What are you thinking? 
I hold my finger up to my lips, and I flip through the calendar again. The first time the initials appeared were in the fall, more than two months before the last entry. I rack my brain trying to recall when Sylvia first mentioned she was dating someone. We sat together on the back porch, a blanket over our legs. Pumpkins of assorted sizes lined the wooden railing. Yellow, red, and orange leaves floated down from the trees onto the grass. We were discussing a new TV series before Sylvia changed the subject. So, what would you say if... She rubbed her hand back and forth across the soft blanket in her lap. I mean, I don't know if you'll approve, but what if I... I knew my sister, and the words jumped out of my mouth. If you started dating again? Of course I approve. Are you kidding? I elbowed her in the ribs. How did you meet? Findmeasexyman.com. Her cheeks flushed pink, and she blew on her cocoa. Don't be ridiculous. Besides, I don't know if you'd call it dating. Wait, I said. You've already gone out with someone? On an actual date? Well, I don't know what to call it, really. I haven't dated in so long, and I don't know if it even counts as that. Dating, I mean. Her fingers flicked the blanket aside. It's kind of weird, doing this again. Oh, please. It can't be any weirder than a man who leaves his wife and children for a Barbie doll. Sylvia jerked as though I'd hit her. Wyatt didn't leave me. I kicked him out. I know you did. I'm sorry. I moved closer to her until our shoulders touched. It's just, you know how much I can't stand him for what he did to you. Val, she started. It was an old argument between us. She refused to speak ill of the father of her children, in spite of what he'd done. I admired her for it, though I couldn't do it myself. She shifted toward me. I want to ask you something. I knew by her tone that I wasn't going to like the question, but I also realized she'd ask anyway. Do you think one of the reasons you're so angry with Wyatt is because of William? William? I hadn't thought about my ex-husband in years. No, that was a long time ago. Are you sure? I looked past her then, my focus drifting. William Trenton Harper the fourth William Trenton, to be exact, part of Harper Communications. What the Harper family didn't own, they bought. That used to be a running joke around town. Probably still is, although I admit I never found it particularly funny. It was one of the reasons I didn't change my name. Of course, it's also possible I knew deep down how things would end up. William was sweet when we first met, quiet, romantic, things I'm not. Maybe that was part of the problem, along with his affair. Still, his fling was one thing. His parting words were another. Val, isn't it you who's always telling me to be my own man? Stop being my father's puppet? But it's not him that's always telling me what to do. It's you, Val. You. If I learned anything from my marriage, it's that blame is easy to parcel out, not so easy to shoulder. William's jab hurt, but he wasn't wrong. 
Back when I was in the third grade, my teacher wrote, Valerie is bossy, in the comments section of my report card. My parents were delighted. My mother even clapped her hands, as though I'd been awarded a prize. On some days, my take-charge attitude is the reason I've built a career as an investigative reporter. On other days, I don't know how it's received. In hindsight, I guess William didn't appreciate it so much. Either way, none of this has anything to do with Wyatt and what he did to my sister. Sylvia is not me any more than Wyatt is William. Aloud? I said none of this. You're changing the subject, Syl. We were talking about you, not me. It's getting late. She let the blanket slip to the ground when she rose. I have an early day at the office tomorrow. Oh, no, you don't, I said. You can't tell me you've been on a date and leave me hanging. Who is he? How'd you meet him? How many times have you been out? I grinned and winked. Are you crazy in love? Sylvia burst out laughing. How many questions can one person ask? I'm so glad I'm not one of the people you interview every day. They must want to kill you. They do. I tried to stay on topic. One more question. No, please stop, she said, holding up her hands, still smiling. There's not much to tell. He's someone I... She paused. He's just a guy I met. Ooh, interesting. What else? She shrugged. We've been out twice. Drinks once and dinner once. And? And? There's nothing more to tell. While it was short on details, it was long on promise. I decided not to press. You don't know how happy it makes me to see you moving on, Syl. You deserve to be happy. She touched a hand to my shoulder. And what about you, Val? Don't you deserve the same? I am happy. I trotted out the same song and dance I always did. Work didn't leave me much time for a personal life, and when I did have time, I wanted to be with her and the kids. It's not enough, she told me. Ever since Wyatt moved out, you've been here for me, for Mary and Miles, and I love you for it, I do. But I don't need you to babysit me anymore. The kids and I are doing fine, I promise. We're a family. I ducked my head. This was what I wanted, wasn't it? Sylvia back on her feet, happy again. They'd found their new normal. We're a family. She squeezed my hands. You need to do more than spend every weekend with us. I feigned outrage, burying any hurt I might have felt. You make it sound like I'm a spinster, spending every night sitting in a rocking chair. She rewarded me with a playful slap on the arm. Don't be ridiculous. And you know I went out to dinner with Brett and Gail the other night. That was two weeks ago. Was it? Well, I had happy hour after work a few days ago. Her expression didn't change. And I have book club. That's once a month. I go to the gym. Not much. And when you do, you have headphones on the whole time and talk to no one. I know you, Val. It's been months since you've been on a date. Well, I drew out the word. That might be true. I spun around. I promise I'll date when I have more time. 
I paused and elbowed her lightly in the ribs. Maybe we can double. Her smile widened, even as she shook her head at me. Fine, you win. She leaned over and picked up the blanket from the ground. By the way, did I tell you Miles is taking guitar lessons? He started last week. Remembering how proud she was of those music lessons, I pick up the calendar now, paging through the weeks and months. Miles's first lesson and the initials SM, followed by question marks, appear in the same week. I drop the calendar on the counter. It feels like a lifetime. SM must be the man she was dating for the past couple of months. Must be? She didn't tell you about him? She did. Did you meet him? No, but they hadn't been dating long. Fair enough, but according to this, he says, pointing at the calendar again, they were starting to see each other more often. I think we should ask her new boyfriend a few questions. How do we get in touch with him? I don't know. She never mentioned his name. He looks at me then, his eyebrows raised. Heat rises from my chest. I know what he's thinking. My sister didn't trust me enough to confide in me. Or we weren't as close as I thought we were. It's a fair assumption, but dead wrong. At least, I think it is. I don't need you to babysit me anymore. At the time, I accepted that she would tell me when she was ready. Besides, not giving her mystery man an identity was a way of protecting herself. If no one knew who he was and things didn't work out, then he never really existed in the first place. I explained my thinking, but Terry's not prepared to let it go. He may have some insight into your sister's state of mind. State of mind? I ask, my face flushed now. As in, did he think she was depressed? As in, why would she lie about going on a business trip and then check into a hotel a few miles from her house? Maybe she told him about it. I want to tell him to mind his own business, but the words die on my tongue. I've let him make it his business, something I'm starting to regret. But the truth is, the question of why Sylvia lied keeps me up at night. If she'd confided in me about Wyatt's threats before, would she be alive now? Detective Newman is convinced the lie was part of her plan to take her own life, but I know better. Wyatt is the reason. He has to be. I tell Terry the same thing I told Detective Barnes. I show him the text from Sylvia and play the voicemails from Wyatt. I watch him as he listens. When Wyatt's tone changes from pleading to threatening, I stare hard. But there's nothing. Not so much as a blink. I don't know why, but I'm disappointed. The detectives heard these voicemails? One did. Both saw the text. You suspect her husband? <laughs> Wouldn't you? He's not ruffled by my outburst, nor is he convinced. It's the most logical explanation. And yet, all the evidence in the hotel room seems to contradict that explanation. Anger burns again. Whose side are you on? Whoa, he says, drawing back. There are no sides, Val. There's only finding out what happened. Tell that to the police, I say. He holds up the calendar again. 
Do you suppose it's possible she wasn't planning to be alone at the hotel? Maybe she didn't go there to hide, but to meet someone. I don't follow at first. Then he says, maybe she was meeting the new boyfriend, S.M. After all, we don't know anything about him. Maybe he doesn't even live in Baltimore. Maybe he travels here for business. Wyatt is momentarily forgotten, and my mind races. I try hard to remember how Sylvia talked about her business trip. I suppose it's possible, I say. Surprising me again, Terry drops the idea as quickly as he suggested it. But as far as we know, she checked in alone, and no one has come forward saying anything otherwise. He taps the calendar again. Though I still think we should talk to the boyfriend. If your sister was afraid of her husband, she may have confided in him. That Sylvia would share her fears with a man she knew for less than three months, rather than me, doesn't make sense. But then again, none of this does. I push my own feelings aside. How do you suggest we go about finding him? The usual way. We talk to her friends, her co-workers, her neighbors. I'll make a list. I grab a pen and notepad from a drawer. I think it's possible Wyatt knew she was dating someone. I say as I write, what if it made him mad? Doubt creeps into his voice. Look, I don't know the guy, but if he wanted out of the marriage like you said he did, why would he care if your sister was dating someone else? Wouldn't that be a good thing? Newman, the first detective, asked the same question. In a normal situation, I would agree. But Wyatt is a grade-A narcissist who thinks the world revolves around him. Just because he didn't want to be married to Sylvia anymore doesn't mean he didn't want her under his thumb. I used to think he was a good guy, but the man has an ego the size of an aircraft carrier. Even after she kicked him out, he kept coming around, and there was nothing she could do about it. She didn't want to deprive the kids of their father. I couldn't understand it. My voice cracks and I avert my face. If I'd known about the way he was scaring Val, I would have told her to get a restraining order. Or we could have called the neighborhood watch, or... Whoa, whoa, whoa. He places his hands on my shoulders. Whatever did or didn't happen between your sister and her husband is not your fault. None of this is your fault. The tears flow again, sliding down my face. I hang my head and mumble agreement, but I know better. It is my fault. Val, if Wyatt walked through the lobby of the Franklin for any reason at all, he'll be on the video. I sniffle and lift my head. His words can't erase my guilt, but they do make me feel better. And then I'll know. He gives me an odd look. You need to get some rest, Val. Taking the list from my hand, he says, this can wait. There is a weariness in my bones, but I force myself to sit up straighter. There isn't much time before the police shut down the investigation, if it can even be called an investigation. I'm fine. An hour, two at the most. You need to sleep, to think clearly. I want to protest, but he says it so softly with no accusation in his tone, that I can't muster the energy. He gathers up the calendar and my bag and leads me out to the car. 
I walk like a zombie, feet shuffling, arms dragging. I hand him my keys and slide into the passenger seat. As he backs out of the driveway, my gaze is locked on my sister's house. Terry had the forethought to switch on a light in the living room and check and double-check all the windows and doors. With the cul-de-sac behind us, my head rolls toward the window. I watch the house in the mirror. It gets smaller and smaller, shrinking like a waning moon, until it's gone. Chapter 14 Terry Monday, 8.16 p.m. Val sits bolt upright on the sofa, flinging the blanket from her body in one motion. I see the moment she spots me in the dim light. You're awake, I say. She inhales, the sound sharp in the quiet of the small house. What are you doing here? You let me in. But why are you still here? What time is it? A little after eight. You were upset, delirious with exhaustion, but you refused to go to bed. The best I could get you to do was lie down on the sofa. Her hands close over the blanket. Did you put this on me? I hope you don't mind. I found it in the closet. She seems to consider this. And you've been sitting here the whole time? Well, not the whole time, I say. I ducked out to the store and picked up some food. I checked your fridge. Didn't look like there was much to eat. Her belly growls in response. I have no idea what was in there. You don't want to know. I get up and move into the kitchen. Are you hungry? No. A second rumble makes her lay a hand on her stomach. Well, maybe a little. She follows me. I open the fridge and pull out my purchases. A pair of chicken breasts, a stick of butter, and two lemons. Next to that, I place a container of mixed greens and a bottle of wine. I gesture toward the bottle. I figured you could use this. Her eyes widen before they narrow. I'm trying to help, to be a friend. Her expression is closed, wary. I don't blame her. If I wanted to hurt you in some way, I've had plenty of time already. I watch her as the realization I'm right sinks in. Be a friend, huh? If you'll allow it. Val appraises me another minute. We'll see, she says. Good enough for now. In the meantime, there's food and wine. Corkscrew? She pulls one from a drawer. I pour two glasses and set one in front of her. Look, I say. You need food, I need food. And if we're going to go over what we know, we might as well do it while we eat, right? She cocks her head. Go over what we know? Yes, and eat. Unlike you, some of us can't survive without food. You don't mind if I make dinner, do you? Do I mind if you make dinner? Her finger trails the rim of her glass. She takes a sip. That's a new one. I wonder what she means, but her shoulders relax. I saute the chicken in butter and wine, then add freshly squeezed lemon juice. 
Enticing smells fill her tiny kitchen, and she stretches forward, watching the chicken sizzle. I still don't understand why you're helping me, Val says. To be honest, you don't seem convinced I'm right. You said yourself Barnes and Newman have the M.E.'s report. It's a formality now. I can't disagree with her. My buddy in the department said as much. But there are those pills. And then there are the other suicides. I open a small jar of capers and add a spoonful to the sauce. Maybe it's the ex-cop in me. She sets her glass down with a clank. I'm not helpless, you know. I can do this on my own. I would never call you helpless. Her jaw drops for one brief second. Long enough for me to know I've taken her by surprise. A little rude, maybe. But I'm chalking that up to your tough exterior. The corners of her mouth twitch. I'm not lying when I say nothing about Val makes me think she's helpless. Hell, she could be the mother in that football movie The Blind Side, a bulldozer ready to take down anyone who threatens her loved ones. She's not afraid to say what she thinks or force her way in. Even if she hadn't told me, I'd know she was a native Baltimorean. That toughness is bred into you here. Her walk and the tilt of her head says, don't mess with me. But I sense there's more to Val Ritter than toughness. The way she startles when I stand too close or offer comfort. The way she can't hide her suspicious nature. The way she believes in her sister in spite of the medical examiner's report. Her pain is like an open wound, visible to anyone who can stand to look past the prickly personality and stubbornness. I say none of this, though. I don't know you that well. But I don't think I'm wrong. Definitely not helpless. I turn the stove off to allow the chicken to rest. While we wait, I prepare and dress the salad. Taking two plates, I dish up the greens, add the chicken, and drizzle the sauce. Shall we? I ask. Val dives into her plate, eating so fast I'm not sure she isn't inhaling the food. So you're not just a retired detective and security chief, you're also an accomplished chef? What else should I know about you? She asks between bites. Accomplished is a stretch, I say with a laugh. I can make about three things that aren't cold cereal. This is one of them. Thank goodness. I was feeling pretty bad about myself there. She takes another bite. So what are the other two things? I can make a mean burger, I raise my glass to her, and a decent omelet. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, she says, clinking her glass with mine. Three square meals. This makes me chuckle. I never thought of it that way, but I guess you're right. Well, if your other things are this good, you're all set. We finish the rest of our meal in an easy silence. I'll clean up she says when we're done. I hand her the plates and wipe up the counter. She rinses and loads the dishwasher. The discomfort from earlier is gone. She feels it too. This is weird, the way we met. She picks up the nearly empty bottle. It must be the wine. Maybe. I smile. Maybe not. Coffee? Sure. 
She takes out two mugs and pops a pot into the coffee maker. After the second pot is finished, she hands me a cup and, taking hers, pads over to the sofa. She curls her legs under her and sinks down lower. Dark blonde hair falls across her cheek, hiding the hollows of her face. She seems smaller, less sure than she did earlier. I wonder again if this is a mistake. Talking my way into another case that involves the Franklin is one of the last things I wanted to do. And I don't want to hurt Val. I could still walk away. I should walk away. But I know I won't. I take the seat on the opposite side of the room and pull my notebook from my pocket. Interest flickers across her face. Should we do the what we know part now? She sets her mug aside and gestures toward my pen and paper. I'm the reporter. It's usually me who takes notes. I'm sorry, do you mind? I don't know if I do or not. She chews at her thumbnail. It still feels a little strange. My sister being gone, the police, you being here, taking notes, all of it. I'm sorry about your sister, I say again. But I can live with strange if you can. Her smile is strained this time, but she sits up straighter. Okay, you're taking notes. She looks around then, her fingers tapping on the arm of the sofa. Where's that list I made? I should start calling some of Sylvia's friends, people she worked with, see if they noticed anything, or anyone. Uh, about your list, I say. While you were sleeping, I made a few calls. Val's fingers stop moving. You did what? I hold up one hand. Only a few, three or four. With each word I say, her face gets redder. That's all, I promise. Val is on her feet now, seething. I can't say I blame her, but I had my reasons. I apologize. I should have waited for you. You're damn right you should have. I don't understand why you would do that. I thought they might be more willing to tell me things they wouldn't tell you. In my former profession, I learned friends don't always like to be the ones to pile on the bad news. If Sylvia was having issues, those friends might not want to tell her grieving sister, but they might be willing to speak with an investigator or outsider. I only talked to three or four people on the list. What people? She asks through clenched teeth. Some of her co-workers at Banford Marketing and Consulting. I took a chance a few folks might still be at the office. I managed to get her assistant and a couple of others. I flip a few pages in my notebook. Her assistant's name is Lenora. I know that, she snaps. I read from my notes. Lenora said she kept your sister's calendar at work, and about two weeks ago, Sylvia scheduled some time off, the same time off that coincides with her reservation at the Franklin. I keep reading. Lenora did know Sylvia was seeing someone, but not who. She also corroborated your story about Sylvia being in a good mood lately. I look over at her. I wasn't doubting you, Val, but the more people who confirm it, the better. 
She shifts in a way that tells me she's not convinced. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Lenora said she saw Wyatt hanging around their office building a couple of times. She couldn't remember the exact dates, but once was the week before Sylvia died. The reason she noticed him is because he was wearing sunglasses and it was drizzling outside. She thought that was odd enough, but even stranger was the way he kept watching the building. She said it made her want to stock up on pepper spray. Did she tell my sister? She said she tried to, but your sister was so preoccupied by her newest client. I paused to check my notes. Headliners, which I gathered is some kind of entertainment company, that she never got the chance. I remember. Syl was excited about that client. She thought they could be the next touring Broadway company with the right marketing strategy. And it was so different from the straight product marketing she'd been doing. I nod, but marketing and Broadway are not things I know much about. Poor Lenora. She must feel terrible. Val falls back on the sofa. What about the others? Nothing other than Sylvia seemed fine to them. Maybe better than fine. She thinks about this. More corroboration, right? Right. One more thing, though. There was a graphic designer she worked with. I flip the page. Wendy Polk. She nods. I've met Wendy a couple of times. Ms. Polk said she asked Sylvia if she was planning to do anything special with her time off. And? And she said no, just a staycation to use some of the days she'd accrued. I take a breath and wait. Val's hand grips the arm of the chair now, her fingers like claws. Sylvia lied. Yes. It wasn't my intention to cast Val's sister in an unfavorable light. But she needs to understand Sylvia was intentionally deceiving everyone around her. Being in that hotel on those days was not random. Everything about it was planned. The reason I bring this up is because the designer said she thought for sure Sylvia was going somewhere like the Caribbean or a cruise. Why did she think that? Because Sylvia seemed almost giddy. Giddy? Her word, not mine. Giddy might be a bit strong, but I thought things were good. Val raises a hand to her temple, rubbing absently. So did everyone else. No one knew about Wyatt and his threats. Maybe she didn't want us to worry. Maybe she didn't think it was as bad as it was. She could have been fooling us all, acting happy. Maybe, I say, and close my notebook. It is interesting your sister's ex-husband was hanging around her building. Do you think anyone else saw him? I hand her the list. There's one way to find out. An hour later, she sags, her head in her hands. Nothing. We don't know anything new. I cross the room and sit next to her. That's not true. The one neighbor, I pause and pick up the list again. Mrs. Harrison, she saw Wyatt's car drive by your sister's house late one night. She said he slowed down but didn't stop. She couldn't be sure if he was there another night too. Based on Lenora's observations and Mrs. Harrison's, it's more evidence Wyatt was checking up on your sister.
Stalking sounds more like it. Possibly. But we still don't know who S.M. is. No one knew much other than she was dating someone. Holding up the list, I say. There are still two of your sister's closest friends we couldn't reach. If anyone knows who the boyfriend is, it could be one of them. A glimmer of hope flickers, but I know she's not convinced. Can I ask you a question? I know we don't really know each other, but this being a detective thing, it seems like who you are. I don't understand why you're not still doing it. She's right on both counts. It is who I am, and we don't know each other well enough. It's late, and you need to get some sleep, I say instead, getting up again. I'll pick you up at nine. Sure. The Franklin? She asks. A cold dread falls over me, settling in my bones. Yes, I say. The Franklin. 1921. Chapter 15. Bridget. The organist pressed the keys, and music filled the sanctuary and vestibule. Bridget's father waited nearby. Her mother and a handful of old schoolmates turned in their seats. The vibration of the organ pipes made Bridget's teeth chatter, and she shivered, swaying on her feet. Time slipped back to a day filled with light and sweet summer scents. Under a canopy of dense green leaves, she ran through the park, her hair flying loose behind her. A soft wind caressed her cheek, and the sun shone down through the trees. She ran toward the lake, toward the water. Diamonds of light rippled across the dark, inky surface. She ran faster and faster. Bridget. The whisper of her name dragged her back to the present. Bridget, it's time. Margaret reached out. Are you sure you want to do this? Before she could answer, her father approached. Smelling of wool and pipe tobacco, he looked from one daughter to the other. This is no time for you two to be prattling on. Bridget blinked. Her father stepped between them. Lawrence is waiting. Your mother is waiting. Bridget nodded, mute, and he moved into place beside her. He lifted a hand toward his eldest daughter. Margaret, he said. Get going. Bridget's father wrapped his large hand around hers in a tight grip. When Margaret reached the altar, Bridget heard the inhale of her father puffing his chest. She knew the seats held relatives and a few school friends. But the faces before her blurred along with the church itself. Her father stepped forward, pulling her along. She tripped once, her legs as heavy as lead. Bridgie, he whispered, using her childhood nickname, and moved his hand to her back. With a gentle push, he lifted her up as though she were no more than a feather. Her mind drifted again, and in the moment she found herself standing before Lawrence, her father already seated with her mother and Margaret holding her flowers, she couldn't have said how she'd gotten there. From what seemed far away, words were spoken. The organist kept playing. Bridget's feet felt glued to the floor, but her mind drifted. The midday sun poured through the stained glass and colored light dotted the floor around her red and blue and yellow. 
so beautiful. A hand at her waist pushed her forward. Startled, she looked up to find Lawrence standing over her, and she shivered. He glanced over at the pastor and back at her. I, Lawrence, take thee, Bridget, to be my wedded wife. His booming voice was loud enough to rattle the rafters. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance, and thereto I pledge thee my troth. He smiled wider, and Bridget's heart stopped. His wasn't a smile of joy or even love, at least not the kind Bridget understood. The reverend directed Bridget next, but the words stuck in her throat. She dared not look at Lawrence, but stared down at the patches of colored light instead. The silence in the church grew louder. Lawrence stepped closer and took her hands in his. The reverend prompted her again. A murmur of voices reached her ears. Lawrence's hands tightened over hers, crushing her fingers until the pain nearly knocked her to her knees. Bridget, he whispered, everyone's waiting. The beautiful colors on the floor turned dark and mottled. I, Bridget, take thee, Lawrence, to be my wedded husband. Tears dripped from her eyes. In sickness and in health, to love, cherish, and to obey till death do us part. Lawrence released his grip, reached into his vest pocket, and slipped a golden ring over her third finger. Bridget stared down at the cool metal, and bile rose in her throat. A hush fell over the church, and the air changed, charged with expectation. Lawrence lifted the veil and, with his thumb, wiped away her tears. It occurred to her she was married now, that she should feel something, happiness or even relief. But all she felt was empty and afraid. Lawrence drew in a breath. My angel. He leaned in close and pressed his cold, pale lips to hers. Chapter 16 Bridget Bridget's mother passed a tray of deviled eggs across the table. Lawrence, you've outdone yourself. Why, I truly believe the Franklin is far superior to the Belvedere. Don't you, Margaret? The food here is simply divine. Bridget exchanged a glance with Margaret. As far as Bridget knew, her mother had never eaten at the Belvedere or even set foot in the lobby of Baltimore's other famed hotel. I wouldn't know, Mother, Margaret said. You've never taken me. Bridget's father ducked his chin, but Catherine didn't blush. Well, then you'll have to trust me on this. The Franklin is the best in the city. It's my pleasure, Catherine, Lawrence said. It wouldn't be the same without my dear wife's family. He snapped his fingers, and a waiter placed a fresh round of teacups on the table. A second waiter poured champagne from the teapot, and Bridget wondered how much Lawrence paid for the contraband. It wasn't that she was naive enough to think prohibition had eliminated the consumption of spirits. No, the truth was something closer to the opposite. But the subterfuge, the teapot, 
would not have come cheap. Lawrence raised his cup. His eyes glittered under the glass chandelier. I hope you don't mind. I've taken the liberty as I want to make a toast to my beautiful bride. They raised their cups one by one. To Bridget, my angel in white. A tap on Bridget's foot made her look around at her sister. Although both Margaret and Bridget had found Luella's chilling tale hard to believe, neither could discount the coincidence of the endearment he favored. Margaret seemed particularly unsettled when Bridget had finished telling her about her visit to Lawrence's first wife. Have you spoken to him about Luella? She'd asked. I didn't tell him I went to see her, if that's what you mean. No, about what happened between them. Bridget had nodded. One time. He told me she tried to harm herself, more than once. That he had to have her committed. He said it was the hardest thing he'd ever had to do, but it was for her own good. Margaret had considered what she'd said. Did you believe him? It made sense, and the marriage was annulled, so... And yet you went to see her. She'd held Bridget's hands in hers. Why? Having no answer, she'd felt foolish and changed the subject again. We should be going. Lawrence can wait, Bridget. Tell me, why did you go see this woman? Bridget had tried to pull away, but Margaret wouldn't let her. It was a question she'd asked herself. Was it because Lawrence was a man who spoke too often of himself, or was it because she'd heard harsh judgment in his words whenever he complained of a business deal or some other trade? Or maybe because she'd seen the way his face colored in anger when he didn't get his way? Aloud, she'd said. I wanted to find out for myself. And did you? With a slow roll of her head, Bridget had told her the truth. I don't know. Now Bridget sat with her new husband and her family under the glow of a twinkling chandelier. Waiters hovered nearby to attend to their every need. Lawrence stood, clutching his cup. To my wife. May she be forever remembered as she is on her wedding day, as pure as the driven snow, as lovely as the freshest flower, as sweet as a Lord Baltimore cake. Bridget's cup shook in her hand. To you I pledge my undying love. How sweet, Catherine said. May we never be parted in life or death. Raising his cup with a flourish, he added, to Bridget. Margaret held her cup without drinking. Charles bent toward his wife, but Margaret waved him away. I'm fine. She lifted her cup higher. To Bridget, she said. Lawrence arched his brows. May she be forever loved for who she is, for her imperfections, for her wicked sense of humor, for her inability to hum a tune, for her stubborn ways, for her love of even the weakest of creatures. Bridget stole a glance at her new husband. Although the expression on his face remained unchanged, the fingers wrapped around the handle of his cup whitened. And not, thank you, Margaret, Bridget interrupted. She loved her sister more in that moment than ever. But she suspected Lawrence would not tolerate much more. I'm so lucky to have you, but now it's my turn. 
she shifted back toward her new husband. To Lawrence, thank you for believing in me always and for your devotion. May all our days be bright and happy. Bridget drank from her cup and hoped it was enough. Catherine got to her feet. Should we all make a toast, then? To Lawrence and Bridget, she started. Her words droned on. Bridget stared at the table and the cups and the silver. The toasts ended. New plates replaced the old. Bridget picked at her halibut with a fork. Lawrence reached over and touched her hand. Do you like your ring? It's not too big, is it? She studied the foreign object on her finger. The thin gold band caught the light, a shiny reminder of the vows she'd made. It's fine. Is anything wrong? He asked. He kept his voice low. Without looking, Bridget knew Margaret was watching, worrying. She did her best to assuage both their minds. Nothing is wrong. I'm a bit tired is all. I didn't sleep much last night. Don't tell me. Wedding jitters? He asked, his voice tight. I suppose. She forced a chuckle, fumbling for the right words. Margaret told me she couldn't sleep the night before she married Charles either. She was so worried she'd trip or something. He stroked his mustache. And what was it you were worried about, my little angel? She dropped her hands to her lap. Oh, it's too silly to say. A vein pulsed at his temple. I'm your husband now. Are you going to keep it a secret from me? Every part of her went still. She'd been right. He was angry. She did the only thing she could. She lied. I was worried you weren't as happy as I was. Lawrence stilled. Why would you be afraid of that? You could have had your pick of women. I'm so young and inexperienced compared to the others. This much she believed to be true. Despite having been married before, or maybe because of it, Lawrence had suffered no shortage of potential would-be brides. His stony face was handsome enough, and he cut an impressive figure in his waistcoat and top hat. And he had money. I didn't want the others. I wanted you. Why? The question was on the tip of her tongue, but she bit back the word. Bridget wasn't sure she wanted to know. Aloud, she said, Well, now you know what kept me up half the night. And at the church today. She rubbed at her hands, remembering the way he'd pressed into the bones of her fingers. She kept her voice light. Nerves, I'm afraid. I'm so sorry. I was so nervous I couldn't talk at all. He sat back and pulled his pipe from his vest pocket. Around them, she heard the clink of silver and low hum of conversation. Under the table, her legs trembled, and she thought how much she would like to slide under the canopy of tablecloth and disappear. You embarrassed me today, he said, standing up there, everyone watching. In an instant, she was back at the altar, afraid to speak her vows, afraid not to. I'm sorry, that was not my intention. I hope you can forgive me. Lawrence tapped his pipe against his palm. Well, what's done is done. She exhaled. It's good of you to understand. I trust it will never happen again. 
Although he hadn't shouted or couched his words in a harsh tone, it didn't matter. Bridget understood the meaning behind the declaration. No, Lawrence. Good girl. He laid his hand over hers. The cool pads of his fingers slid across her skin and a chill crawled up her spine. No more reason to be worried or nervous. As my wife, you belong to me now. Nothing, and no one, will ever tear us apart. Lawrence lifted her chin with his finger and brought his face close to hers. I promise you that. Present Day Chapter 17 Val, Tuesday, 8.38 a.m. I avoid the mirror in the hall and suck down my fourth cup of coffee, savoring the bitter tang. I've been up since four, making notes and writing down everything I can remember. I push aside the half-eaten piece of toast, gather my notebooks and a handful of photos, and move to the front window to wait. Unsurprisingly, Terry arrives on time. Sliding into the passenger seat, I see Terry's mouth set in a hard line, his hands locked over the steering wheel. Silent, he pulls out into the last of the morning traffic. The blanket of clouds in the sky matches my mood, and I'm glad I grabbed a scarf on my way out. The Franklin isn't far, ten minutes by car. I considered walking, but it's chilly, and I didn't want to waste the time. And Terry offered. The sooner I see those recordings, the better. As we get closer, I lean forward, craning my neck to see. The hotel is built from brick and white stone, with tall windows and arched lines. An elaborate crown sits atop the 14th floor. The name, the Franklin, is etched in stone above the covered entrance. Oversized lanterns hang over the Roman-style letters. A man in a red and black uniform stands on the carpet near the smoked glass doors. For some reason, the forced smile on his face reminds me of an old eagle's song, the one that says you can check in any time you want, but never leave. I take deep breaths and tell myself it's only a hotel. A nice one, sure, but still just a brick building like any other on the block. It's not the reason my sister is gone. I've walked by this hotel countless times. I've had drinks in its famous Juniper Bar, though it's more of a tourist destination now than a local favorite. It's a hotel, nothing more. The car comes to a stop, and I feel better. You okay? Terry asks. Fine. The man in the uniform takes Terry's keys and hands him a ticket. I don't wait. Another uniformed employee opens the heavy door for me. Inside, I tilt my head upward, taking in the lobby ceiling. Three stories high, it's painted in black, gold, and red, the dark colors reflected in the heavy chandeliers. The lobby itself is a swirl of deep couches and shiny marble, offset by a massive stone fireplace where orange flames dance and crackle. I have to give it to the decorators. They've created an atmosphere that's both rich with history and modern and inviting at the same time. But standing there, 
All I know is this hotel is the last place my sister ever saw. Terry appears at my side. I always forget how fancy this place is. You don't like it? He jerks his thumb toward the sculptures carved into the walls. I don't like those. I glance back at him. His expression is grim, not admiring or even approving. It's art, if you say so. Seems like you don't appreciate the Franklin all that much. It's not really my style, he says, but there's a steely set to his jaw and a hardness in his voice I haven't heard before. For a moment, I wonder what I'm doing here, why I'm standing with a man I've known for less than 24 hours in the last place my sister was alive. When he mentions the video, I remember. If I want to find the truth, I need him. Billy texted he's in a meeting, he says, waving his phone at me. He'll be out in about 20 minutes. Sorry about that. He points at a golden couch. We can wait over there. My gaze sweeps past the couch and the marble to the elevators. The doors slide open and guests spill out. There's something else I want to do instead. What's that? I want to see the room. Sylvia's room. It's still sealed. I want to see it. He sighs. I thought you might. Billy got us cleared. There should be a key waiting for us at the front desk. I stare at him. How did you... I'm getting to know you. At the desk, the clerk hands Terry an envelope. Inside is a note and card key. Terry reads the note, then stuffs it in his pocket. What's it say? Room number. In the elevator, he pushes the button. Fourteen. I step closer. The numbers skip from twelve to fourteen. I know this trick, one that's common during renovations of old buildings and hotels like this one. Sometimes they use 12A and 12B or some other nonsense, but I'm not fooled. It doesn't matter what you call the floor. It's still number 13. The doors slide open and I follow him down the hall. Is this it? I ask. There's no crime scene tape or extra lock, nothing to keep someone from entering other than a single do not enter sign hanging from the door. He holds up the key. Yep. I thought you said it was sealed. Figure of speech. Bullshit. If they were treating this like a potential homicide, there would be tape. It would be sealed. Not necessarily. It's locked to guests. Staff have been instructed to stay out. There's no reason for tape. I notice the way he stands a few feet back from the door. What's wrong? Nothing. Are you sure you want to do this? Why wouldn't I? He searches my face as he speaks. She's not in that room, Val. I know that. I force a laugh. I'm not crazy. It's not like I believe in ghosts or something. The way he flinches, I think my words make me sound exactly that. Crazy. I have to see it, I say. Please. With a nod, he waves the key in front of the door and pushes it open.
I step inside and gag, slapping my hand over my mouth. Even though it's been five days since Sylvia was found, the sickly, sharp odor of decomposing flesh still lingers under the scent of bleach and pine sol. Oh, Syl, I whisper. He lays a hand on my shoulder. You don't have to do this. I breathe through my mouth and tell myself this is no time to be a wimp. Yes, I do. For Sylvia. I leave him at the door and pull open the curtains, bathing the room in warm light. I take my notebook from my bag. The room is large, a suite. A sitting area is outfitted with a sofa, two chairs, and a flat-screen TV. There's a bar area and a half-bath. I write in my book, Expensive Room. This is another reason I can't understand my sister being there. Tight as a tick doesn't even scratch the surface when it comes to Sylvia and money. Terry's question from the night before echoes in my head. Why would Sylvia book a suite for herself? The bedroom has another flat screen and a king-sized bed. The bedding and mattress are gone now. I walk closer and try to imagine Sylvia here, watching a movie, reading, working. I can't get my mind around it. Can't reconcile her being here at all. I make my way to the bathroom. There's a massive shower, a soaker tub, and double sinks with brass fixtures that wink under the lights. It's a bathroom for two. The thought makes me push aside the towels and peer under the sink. But there's nothing to find. Whatever personal effects were there are gone now. Is it cold in here to you? Terry calls out from the suite's doorway when I come out of the bathroom. I want to ask him how he would know, since he's barely stepped inside the room. But I don't. Reaching out with my hand, I touch the headboard and close my eyes. This is where she was found. I can feel him watching me from the other room, sense his discomfort. He thinks I'm crazy, but I'm not. I'm not trying to channel her spirit. I know she's gone. And yet, I want to feel her presence, be where she was, to trace her footsteps, to find out the truth. Terry's phone buzzes. He's ready for us. I turn away from the bed, the last place my sister was alive. The suite is cold. Terry is right about that. And empty. You didn't look around, I say, catching up to him in the hall. The police already cleared the room. His answer is quick, though I don't consider it satisfactory. He was a cop once. Surely he should have wanted to see something. The elevator starts its descent, and his shoulders loosen with each floor. I start to ask why, but change my mind. He's all business now, and whatever his problems are, I have enough of my own. The security office is on the mezzanine that overlooks the lobby. Screens line a long wall. On the first row of monitors, I see a view of the front entrance, another facing the elevators, another of the laundry facility, and yet another that looks to be outside the restaurant downstairs. 
Three men sit in front of the computers and control panels. The largest of the men gets up to greet us. Terry, my man, it's been too long. I watch them shake hands, exchange a few words. Terry asks about the man's family and the job. I'm forced to wait, and I drum my fingers against my bag until Terry introduces me. Billy leads us to a corner of the large office where a single monitor sits on a desk. He taps on the keyboard as he talks. I went back to the day you said the deceased checked into the hotel. That would be Sunday. Check-ins don't begin until after three, so that's where it starts. A frozen image of the lobby appears on the monitor. He points at some buttons. Fast forward, pause, zoom. You can rewind to where the recordings begin. Where do they end? Terry asked. When she was found. His eyes cut to me, then back to Terry. Just like you asked. Chapter 18 Terry Tuesday, 9.42 a.m. Billy toggles another key, and I do a quick mental calculation. There are almost 100 hours of recorded video in the time Val's sister checked in until her body was found, per camera. We could be here for days. This is the camera for the main elevators, Billy says. You can go back and forth between these two recordings. I gesture at a series of screens on the other side of the room. You have more than these two cameras. Is there anything on the 14th floor? Can't give you that, Terry. The lobby is a public place, but upstairs gets into privacy stuff. We don't turn that over without a warrant. You understand? I figured. I appreciate your help, Billy. Sure, I'll leave you to it. We sit down, and Val slips out of her coat. Her feet tap, bouncing up and down off the floor. I hesitate. Suddenly worried this is a mistake. It's not too late. The coroner's report said overdose, suicide. Val is convinced Sylvia was driven to do what she did, maybe even helped along. Am I getting her hopes up? Probably. And yet I know she'll keep going until she's exhausted every avenue to find the answer with or without me. She's relentless that way. And I've come this far. Ready? More than ready. I push play, and Val slides closer to the monitor, squinting at the screen. The lobby isn't particularly busy, which makes sense. It was a Sunday, not a high travel day. Business travelers would be checking in for Monday meetings, but most of the leisure travelers would be gone. We watch as two men in suits enjoy drinks near the fireplace. A few other guests pass through and leave the hotel. After about 15 minutes, someone comes in rolling a suitcase and heads straight for the main desk. Another 10 minutes pass before there's another guest. Do you know what time your sister might have checked in? I ask. Val slaps the table. God, I'm an idiot. I was at Sylvia's when she was packing. She scheduled a ride to pick her up at 5.30. Okay, allowing drive time to get to the hotel, she couldn't have checked in until close to six. Go to 545, she says. 
I hit the button and the action on the screen speeds up. She taps her feet faster, and with my free hand, I fiddle with a pencil. At the 5.45 mark, I stop the recording, restarting it at normal speed. At five minutes before six, a woman walks through the doors. I recognize her from the photo on Sylvia's mantle. She's older now, but it's her. Val inhales, and her foot goes still. There's a softness to her face as she watches the action on the monitor. On screen, Sylvia walks toward the desk, pausing halfway to look up at the painted ceiling. The camera catches a clear shot of Sylvia's face. Stop the tape. She presses her body as close as she can. Zoom in. With the mouse hovering over Sylvia, I enlarge the picture. Val reaches out and touches the screen with her fingers. The banter between the guards behind us fades into the background. She stares, unblinking, at her sister's upturned face. Her fingers fall away, landing on the desk. I can't believe that was one week ago. One week. The words are spoken so quietly I have to tilt my ear toward her. She's crying again, but it's softer, more heartbreaking somehow. I find another handkerchief in my pocket. If she thinks it's old-fashioned, she doesn't say. She takes it and wipes her eyes. Do you want to keep going? I ask. Her foot bounces again. From across the room, I hear the crackle of a chip bag and the slurp of a soda. She focuses on the screen and sits up taller. Back up the tape to when she walks in and goes to the front desk, she says. Okay. Can you do it in slow motion? We watch her come into the hotel again, dragging her bag behind her. She stops to admire the ceiling, then spins around, presumably taking in the beauty and charm of the historic hotel. She heads to the front desk, passing directly in front of the camera. When she reaches the clerk, only her profile is visible. We watch her hand over her credit card and check in. Signing, she takes her key and grabs her bag, moving in the direction of the elevators. After a few steps, she stops and looks back at the desk clerk, who is waving a white envelope. Sylvia takes it. What's that? Val asks. Something about the room? She shakes her head. She didn't give an envelope to the other guests when they checked in. Val is right. Sylvia is the first guest to receive an envelope. I watch as Sylvia steps to the side, opens the envelope, and pulls out a slip of paper. I watch her eyes brighten and see her face break into a lopsided grin, exactly like Val's. Whatever was in that note made her happy. Can you zoom in again? I do my best, but the angle of the camera makes it impossible to see what was on the slip of paper. Still... There's no denying that whatever the message said, it was welcomed. Her foot smacks the floor. Damn it. She's heading for the elevator, I say. Let's switch over. I change the recording and fast forward, stopping it again as Sylvia comes onto the screen. She drags her suitcase to the doors and pushes the button. 
As she's about to step on, a tall man with dark brown hair runs over. She turns and smiles again. I hear the catch in Val's breath. The man leans in for a hug. Do you know him? I ask. No, at least I don't think so. It's hard to see. I slow the tape, but the man doesn't turn around enough for us to get a clear view. For one brief second, there's a partial profile. He lays an arm over her shoulder, and they step into the open elevator together. The doors slide closed. She doesn't need to ask me to rewind again. I play the scene twice more, but there's no clear view of the man. We switch recordings again. He's not on the tape that captures the lobby and front desk. Where did he come from? She asks. Isn't the restaurant down the hall from the elevators? She looks over at me. So you're thinking he was having dinner? Or drinks at the bar. I don't know where else he could have come from. She knew him. Her voice is tinged with wonder and sadness. And I understand. Whoever the man was, Sylvia was happy to see him, yet he was a stranger to Val. Seemed like it. Do you think that's the boyfriend, S.M.? It would make some sense. I spin around in my chair to face her. But let's not make assumptions too soon. If they're together, they might come back down in the elevator for dinner and we can get a better view. Her hands tap along with her foot. Good idea. Let's focus on the elevators for now. We watch the recordings at a faster speed to save time. The elevators are busy with new guests arriving and others going up and down to the restaurant or the lobby. In spite of the monotony, I can't look away any more than Val. Time passes and I make notes. I want to know about the envelope and the man on the elevator. More time passes. And still, Sylvia doesn't come down. She might have ordered room service, Val says. We can check. I stand up, stretching my legs. Do you want some coffee? Val tells me yes, her gaze never leaving the screen. Let me know if I miss anything. I'm joking, but she doesn't laugh. It feels good to get out of the security room, even for a few minutes. I've seen my share of homicide victims, beatings, weird stuff, but there's something unnerving about watching the last hours of someone's life play out on a screen. As I walk down the hall, I remember the Juniper, the hotel's bar and nightclub. It's on the mezzanine, too, the same floor as the security office. It hits me that Sylvia may not have gone to the restaurant after all. She could have come here, to the second floor in the Juniper. Grabbing a couple of coffees, I make a mental note to tell Val about my idea. The security doors slide closed behind me, and I cross over to our corner. Val, I say, touching her lightly on the arm. She reaches back to take the cup, half-turning, one eye still on the monitor. The cup nearly slips from her hand as she jerks forward. Oh my God. What? I ask as I sit down. Stop the tape, now. I press the button. 
Back it up, she says, and I rewind. There, hit play. I scan the screen, but I don't know what Val is seeing. I check the timestamp on the recording, 8.39. It's been almost three hours since Sylvia checked in and took the elevator up in the company of a man with dark hair. The time clicks over to 8.40. A man enters the screen, his face in profile. I knew it, Val says, her voice a half growl. Pointing at the man, I ask, him? Yes. The man has a black computer bag hanging over his shoulder. He pushes the elevator button and glances behind him, surveying the lobby. Freeze it. I stop the recording again. Val's skin has gone white. It dawns on me then. Is that the husband? Yes, she says, choking out the words. That's him. Wyatt. 1921. Chapter 19. Bridget. Bridget clung to her sister, hot tears slipping over her cheeks. Margaret's husband looked on and clucked his tongue. Supposed to be a happy day, right? Women, he said with a measure of wonder. I'll never understand them. Bridget heard Lawrence's displeasure in his silence, and still, she didn't let go. It was her mother who forced them to separate. Bridget, darling, give your mother a hug, Catherine said, tapping her on the shoulder. She spoke in the kind of sing-song voice that made Bridget wonder if her mother had drunk too much champagne at lunch. Your father and I want to wish you our very best. Margaret pulled her tighter shifting her out of Catherine's reach. She whispered in Bridget's ear, If you need me, I'll come, I promise, no matter what. Bridget swallowed the lump in her throat. Her mother swooped in for a brief hug, followed by an even briefer one from her father. Margaret's husband shifted from one foot to the other. Finally, he reached out and shook Lawrence's hand. Welcome to the family, then. Guess we'll be seeing you around at the holidays. The holidays. Lines appeared between Lawrence's brows. Well, I usually spend the holidays at my farm. Catherine clasped her hands together. Did you hear, dear? The holidays at the farm. Wouldn't that be nice and cozy? Bridget's father frowned, the ends of his mustache twitching. Why would I want to travel 30 miles for the holidays when my home is right here? He looked over at his new son-in-law. No offense there, my boy. None taken, sir. Lawrence's forehead cleared. The country would be a lovely place to spend Christmas, Margaret said. I agree, dear, Catherine trilled. And clearly Lawrence is the most thoughtful of husbands, inviting us so Bridget won't miss too much. Lawrence cleared his throat, but Bridget's mother didn't notice. Don't you see, dear, we absolutely have to go to the country this year for Christmas, for Bridget. The sisters exchanged a glance, and Margaret winked. Darling, her father said, taking his wife's arm. I think it's high time we left these newlyweds on their own. Catherine pushed out her lower lip. Not until you say you'll think about it. Think about what? Bridget stole another glance at her sister, 
both knew their father was deliberately being obtuse. Going to the farm for the holidays. Catherine turned her attention to Lawrence. Tell him you insist, dear. All eyes shifted to Lawrence. Every muscle on his face appeared frozen, even as he gave a short nod. I insist, George. It would mean a lot to me and to my wife, I know. I'd enjoy showing you around. For the first time, their father seemed to consider the idea. Well, with an invitation like that, I will certainly think about it. Might be a nice change of scenery. Glad to hear it, Lawrence said and shook his new father-in-law's hand. We'll be there too, Margaret said, her voice overly loud. That is, if we're invited. Catherine cut in, oblivious to Lawrence's growing irritation. Bridget fidgeted where she stood. Of course you're invited. I may even come early for some sister time, Margaret said, her words directed toward her new brother-in-law. If it's all right with you. Lawrence's jaw tightened. Sister time? Margaret's husband touched a hand to the small of his wife's back. Well, darling, that depends on- The holidays are only a few weeks away, Margaret said, cutting him off. It will be the perfect time for travel. It's settled then, Catherine said and clapped her hands like a child. Bridget kept her head down, hiding her joy at this welcome development. She whispered a silent thank you to her drunken mother and her clever sister. All together for the holidays, Catherine sang, grabbing at her husband's arm. Isn't it wonderful? Wonderful, her father said. And with that, we'll be going. Margaret lingered long enough to squeeze Bridget's hands before catching up to her husband. Bridget followed them to the door and stepped over to the large window, watching them through the glass. Margaret lifted one gloved hand. Bridget pressed her palm to the window, her throat tight with unshed tears. She watched the automobile pull away and motor up the road out of sight. She stood unmoving for several minutes, her breath fogging the glass. From behind, Lawrence placed his hands on her shoulders. She jumped, and he pressed his mouth to her ear. Nothing to be nervous about, my angel. She forced herself to relax, keep her tone light. I'm not. At least no more than any other bride, I suppose. Be that as it may, there's no hurry to get to our rooms. He spun her around. I thought you might enjoy a tour of the hotel first. The truth is, I've stayed here so often it's become something of a second home to me. He held out his arm to her. Let me show you around, my love. He led Bridget through the lobby, talking all the while. As I recall, the artist who painted the ceiling is European. They brought him over from France just for that purpose. She gazed up at the intricate design. It was very pretty, but too dark for her taste. She liked the chandeliers better. Their glass pendants glowed orange and red and yellow, reflecting the flames crackling in the large fireplace. And the sculptures in the stonework, he said, walking on. Aren't they magnificent? Who are they supposed to be? He laughed. All in good time. The man who built the hotel was Albert Franklin. He built his fortune in shipping and traveled all over the world. Certainly you can see he's been influenced by European design. Yes, Bridget said, although she knew little of architecture. Well, 
The story is that the man who built the hotel was enamored of all things Roman. So each of these statues is one of the gods of Rome. There are twelve in all. His hand hovered over the sculpture closest to them. Here is Vulcan, the god of fire. And there's Pluto and Jupiter. He steered her around the lobby. And here is Cupid, the god of love. She peered at the cherubic figure with its bow and arrow and frowned. It's a bit silly when you think about it, isn't it? A child as the god of love? Lawrence gave her an indulgent smile. I suppose you're right. He showed her the remaining sculptures, naming them as he walked. Then he pointed at the floor. The marble is Italian and was brought over by ship. She whirled around on her toes. In spite of herself, he'd brought the hotel to life. How do you know all this? I know a great many things, my angel. A great many things. They climbed the staircase to the second floor and passed by a lady's parlor. Perhaps you might take tea in there before we leave tomorrow. She peeked into the sunny room. Tall windows lined the far wall, the heavy glass glittering in the light. Cloths with delicate flowers covered the round tables, and soft pastels adorned the walls and rugs. Oh, I would like that, Bridget said, and meant it. Then you shall. He sauntered further down the hall. Over here is the famous Juniper. Juniper wasn't a god, was he? He laughed. No, but the Juniper tree is believed to have a strength of its own as a protector against evil. She stepped closer. Tall juniper trees laden with berries were carved into the dark wooden doors. What kind of room is it? A gentleman's club of sorts. Oh. Bridget knew what her new husband was alluding to. A place for men and their cigars and pipes and, in spite of prohibition, alcoholic drinks. What's it famous for? Debauchery, of course. He stroked his mustache with his long, thin fingers. But that's not what made it famous. He paused, lowering his voice. There was a murder. Or so they say. So much for protecting against evil. Bridget's hand rose to her throat. A murder? Two years ago now. Over a woman is the story. She cringed at the scorn in his voice. Men with weak temperaments given to too much whiskey, if you ask me. He sucked in his cheeks as he spoke, giving him the pinched look of a much older man. Prohibition couldn't have come soon enough. She knew better than to remind him they'd both indulged in champagne at their wedding lunch. Instead, she asked, what happened? He guided her away from the doors. No need for you to trouble yourself about it, my angel. Much too sordid a tale for your ears. Bridget started to object, but he cut her off his voice hard. I wouldn't want to think my new wife was fascinated by wanton ways and murder. I would be a terrible husband indeed to fill your pretty head with thoughts of evil men. Best if I say no more. His hand tightened over her arm, and she shivered in spite of the warmth of her wrap. Unless you're not the woman I think you are. Wow. Looks like Val was right about Wyatt, even if she hasn't found evidence yet that connects him to Sylvia's death. Still, why was he stalking her? And what was he up to? Plus, there's that man in the elevator. 
Could he be SM? And then there's Bridget, who's definitely still feeling uneasy. But who wouldn't be in her position? How is she supposed to tell if she really knows the man she's married? Learn what happens next by tuning in to our next episode. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen to Her Sister's Death now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on CamCat Unwrapped as serialized podcasts. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also, check out our background episodes where we interview our authors and have them participate in fun writing challenges. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.